Do you believe in Santa? Yes, I do. Why do you think he does it? I mean, is he just being super nice? I don't know. It's actually kind of weird when you think about it like that. I think it's just what he's always done, but why? I don't. What I don't know is why he's always done it. Did he do it when you were little too? Yeah. My daughter is eight, and like a lot of kids, hasn't thought much about why some old guy in a red suit wants to give everyone gifts. Presents are presents, right? Who cares where they come from, or why? But most adults haven't thought about this either. Why do we gift each other around the holidays or any time? There's an artwork at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, an etching by Winslow Homer called Santa Claus and His Presence. Came out in Harper's Weekly magazine in 1858 and doesn't actually show Santa at all. It shows a boy asleep in his room with, to my eyes anyway, a ton of presents hanging off his bed. In stockings, in shoes, in pants with the legs tied at the bottom, which is not a thing I would have thought of. And then, off to the side with a candle, the real Santas, right? The parents. Looking both exhausted and pleased with themselves. Which, again, begs the question... Is it for them or us? What would happen if Santa, all of us collective Santas of the world, anyone who's ever bought a gift for any reason, just stopped? No more lists. No more sneaking around. No more stocking stuffers. No more stuff. Would we be better off or worse? A log upon the fire This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, now showing in our hands native photography 1890 to now, tracing the histories and diversity of indigenous cultures from the Rio Grande to the Arctic Circle. The object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture and the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story in four parts about the gift of gifting. Who's got it? Why do we do it? And some of the many ways it plays out, for better or worse. I'm Tim Gehring. What will you? Part one of our story, Paris, in the 1920s. When Man Ray, the artist, moves there from New York. Man Ray was actually Emmanuel Rednitsky before the family changed their surname to Ray, and Emmanuel changed his first name to Man. His father, a tailor from Russia, didn't know what to say when Man became an artist, especially a Dada artist. Do you know these guys? The Dadaists. 
Toward the end of World War I, artists and writers in Europe are like, look, nothing makes sense anymore. Everything we thought we knew is literally obliterated, wiped clean. There's nothing left but Dada. Well, that's one story anyway. Dada is baby talk nonsense. But it's kind of the most Dada thing ever that the artist can't agree on where the name came from. Some say they found the word at random in a German-French dictionary, meaning rocking horse. Others say it came out of a Dada nightclub in Zurich, Switzerland, the Cabaret Voltaire, where people read poetry like Gaji Berry Bimba, Glanridi Lawi Loni Kadori. Nonsense. Dada. Man Ray goes to New York at first. The perfect place for Dada, right? Where the ordinary is extraordinary. Well, it's also the worst place for Dada. Quote, Dada cannot live in New York, Ray writes. All New York is Dada and will not tolerate a rival. So, in 1921, he moves to Paris. Paris in the 1920s. Trey Dada. There's Gertrude Stein, the mater familias of avant-garde artists and writers. There's Ernest Hemingway, who parties so hard at Ray's apartment, he needs a bandage wrapped around his head. There's Sylvia Beach, the owner of Shakespeare and Company, the famous Paris bookstore, who commissions Man Ray to photograph James Joyce for the release of Ulysses. Trey Dada. Within a few months, Ray lands his first solo show in Paris. It's at a bookshop called Library 6. And the day before the show opens on New Year's Eve, Ray is there arranging his art when, in his words, in walks a strange, voluble little man in his 50s. The man is Eric Satie, the composer. You may know Satie from this piano piece, Gymnopédie, Actually, several piano pieces. Gymnopédie 1, Gymnopédie 2, and so on. It's not a real word, Gymnopédie. Though Sati calls himself a gymnopedist. A reference to the ancient Greek festival where young men ran around naked. Maybe. Maybe not. A good Dadaist would never tell. Ray tells Sati he's tired and cold. The gallery is unheated. So Sati takes his arm and leads him outside to a corner cafe and orders grog for both of them. Hot rum and honey, right? And they hit it off. Even though Sati's at least two decades older. The granddada of Dada's. Sorry, that's a Dada joke. After leaving the cafe... They're walking down the street, ambling, as one does in Paris, and they amble into a hardware store. With Sati's help, because Ray barely speaks French at this point, they buy a flat iron, the old kind you have to heat up on a stove, along with some nails and glue, and then they return to the gallery. Ray glues 14 nails in a line down the middle of the iron, like spikes, and he calls it Cadeau, the gift, intended for one of the owners of the gallery, 
guy named Philippe Soupeau, yet another dedicated dades. Now, let's think about this gift, this cadeau. Kind of a sadistic iron, right? It would rip clothes, not press them. Or is that maybe the point? As Man Ray would say of his gift, you can tear a dress the ribbons with it. And he later does just that, asking an 18-year-old woman to wear the shredded dress as she dances. It was really beautiful, he would say. Well, what about the guy he gives it to? The Dadaist gallerist. What does he think? Well, we don't know. And what might really be the most Dada thing ever, before the afternoon is over, the gift is stolen. Okay, let's pause this story for a moment. And let's go back, way back. Part two of our story, Ancient Greece in the Age of Myth. When Zeus and friends are atop Mount Olympus, looking down on the rest of us. It's good to be a god, right? Not that any of these ancient Greek gods are actually good. Most of them would be terrible humans. But that's the point. They're not human. When the humans appear on Earth, most of the gods are like, oh, look, something to mess with when we're bored or angry. Who made these helpless little men? And they are, at first, all men. Well, someone did. Prometheus, one of the great giants, a titan, formed them out of mud in the image of the gods. Zeus is like, yeah, no. These guys will never be gods, okay? Never immortal. They can just stay there on Earth and look up at the rest of us on Olympus for 100 years or, well, 50. Okay, maybe 25. Prometheus is pissed. He's proud of these little men. And so one day when he's hanging around the workshop of Hephaestus, the god of fire, and he sees a pile of thunderbolts ready for Zeus to smite the humans whenever he's feeling smiteful, Prometheus takes one tiny spark of the god's fire and he carries it down to earth. Prometheus gives humans the gift of fire, right? So they can stay alive and prosper, be a little more like the gods. And now Zeus is mad, like smiteful mad. And he has Prometheus chained to a cliff and has the sun dry out his skin and calls down a vulture to eat his liver every single day because it keeps growing back overnight. Hercules finally rescues him, but by then it's a thousand years later, and Zeus doesn't care about Prometheus anymore. In fact, he actually kind of likes the humans, because now they're off and running. Smart, kind, grateful, all thanks to the gift of fire. Now, who really knows what the first gift was? But it probably didn't come from the gods, right? More likely, it was for the gods. Food, jewelry, people. But there's some evidence that prehistoric people started gifting things to each other, too. 
rocks they thought were especially shiny or nice. Animal teeth. It's a form of kinship, right? Social bonding. You're one of us. Have a tooth. It's also chemistry. Scientists have actually watched neurotransmitters shoot through people's brains during an act of kindness, including dopamine, the happy hormone you release when you're having sex or a steak or maybe giving a tooth. K-person give gift, feel good. Over time, gifting gets more and more elaborate. The king of Portugal giving the Pope a white elephant, literally, named Hanno, who romps around Rome for two years until he's given a laxative mixed with gold and dies. Pope Leo X writes an epitaph for Hanno that's more or less about the Pope, even though it's in the first person. I wish, O gods, that the time which nature would have assigned to me and destiny stole away, you will add to the life of the great Leo. You see, it's not necessarily better to give than receive. Getting something releases dopamine too, which is why it's so good to be Pope Leo and so hard to resist temptation. Which leads me to the second gift given to humans after fire. Zeus is so mad at Prometheus, he doesn't just have Hephaestus tie him up and torture him. He has Hephaestus forge the first woman, Pandora, which means a gift to all. Zeus gives her a box, saying, and here's my gift to you. Just don't ever open it. Well, of course, she does, right? Just like Zeus knew she would. And all these evils are released into the world. Sorrow, disease, violence, greed. Which he hopes will kill off Prometheus's little humans. Except there's one thing left in the box that Zeus didn't know was there. Hope. Secretly added to the box by Prometheus. Now, let's jump ahead a few thousand years to our third story, Zurich in the 1960s. The Cabaret Voltaire, long gone. The Dadaists disappeared. Instead, there's guys like Bruce Dayton from Minneapolis. Very nice, very rich. One of five brothers who founded a store you might have heard of called Target. Dayton is vacationing in Zurich at a place called the Dolor Grand Hotel, which looks like a castle and offers golf, tennis, a skating rink, curling, everything a guy from Minnesota might want. But Dayton wants something else. He isn't just relaxing around the curling rink or whatever you call it. He wants art. By 1968, he's been on the board of the Minneapolis Institute of Art for more than 20 years. And one day, over in Basel, about an hour away, he walks into a gallery. Dear Tony, he later writes to the director of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, on stationery from the Grand Hotel, I asked about a Manet. 
Now, later in the trip, Dayton will go on to find other art. He'll send a postcard to Anthony Clark, the museum director, saying, I'm going way out of my class and buying a small Roman torso. Don't laugh until you see it. In a few years, he'll divorce and eventually remarry. And his second wife will be very much into Asian arts and healing. And Dayton will gift to the museum nearly a thousand pieces of Chinese furniture and sculpture and even entire rooms taken apart and shipped over from China. Some $20 million worth of art. It will be hard to find anyone anymore, anywhere, who's offered more to one place as a gift. But in this moment, in Switzerland, Dayton only has eyes for this painting by Manet. It's called The Smoker, Les Fumoires, a solitary person with a pipe, which became a kind of 19th century meme. Manet made a lot of drawings and etchings of this subject, a comfortably bewhiskered man believed to be his neighbor, which have circulated widely. You can go on Google right now and buy a smoker drawing, 2400 bucks. What Dayton is admiring is the original oil painting, big and bold and apparently bewitching, painted in 1866 in Paris. It's been owned by Gertrude Vanderbilt, founder of the Whitney Museum of American Art, shown at the New York World's Fair in 1940. Dayton apparently walked into the gallery, asked if they had any mayonnaise, and was referred to this one, on loan to the local Kunstmuseum. It is not priced cheaply. However, Dayton writes to Clark, it is a great mayonnaise. It is beautifully painted, though quite dark except for a delft blue handkerchief in his hand. The head is magnificent and has very much the feel of a Rembrandt. It would stand out in our galleries. I don't see how we can hope to do better on a Manet. Well, let's leave Mr. Dayton in Switzerland for a moment and go back for our next story to the age of legend and prophecy and stargazing. You know where this is going, right? There's a painting at the Minneapolis Institute of Art from 1894 called Journey of the Magi by James Tissot. A long caravan of camels winding through the desert of Palestine, led by three men in robes and turbans. It's so natural and realistic, it almost looks like a photo. As if to say, look, this isn't just a story. This is as real as the Eiffel Tower. Tissot even went to Palestine three times to get a feel for the place. But what is the story of three men with three gifts? There's very little mention of it, actually, in the Bible. Just a few lines in one of the four Gospels. No mention of wise men or who gave the gifts at all, just the gifts. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, right? Brought to baby Jesus in the manger. It's only much later, in other stories, that the gifts get some givers. Three men with exotic names. Casper, Melchior, Balthazar. 
and are assumed to be kings. Which is the point of the story, right? The great and powerful recognizing one of their own. And also the contrast between the old ways of honoring gods with gold and glory and the new way. A God who asks for nothing and gives anyway. Okay, let's step away from Sunday school for a moment and pick up our other stories where we left them. Man Ray in Paris in 1921 with his sadistic iron. When it's stolen, all that's left is a photo Ray has taken of it. Which is fine. It's fine. As we so often say, it's the idea that counts. And for a Dadaist, it might even be better. But late in his life, when Ray is famous and so is the idea of the cadeau, he decides to make more of them. Thousands more. Including one that he does in fact give to a friend, and one that's now in the collection of the Minneapolis Institute of Art. In fact, you can buy one right now for about $1,500 and give it to a friend or foe. As for Mr. Dayton and his Manet, he does buy it and gift it in the way these things so often happen then. In response to his letter on the hotel stationery, the director of the museum here had telegrammed him, short, sweet, desirous, deeply believed smoker, perfect picture for us. Now, the Magi and their gifts. I think we know that the celebration of Christ's birth around the winter solstice in December totally ended the pagan tradition of giving gifts at that time. No. Well, in fact, continuing to give gifts was one of the ways the church brought people into the fold, right? With the gifts of the Magi as the rationale. But that doesn't mean everyone has been happy about this. Especially the Spugs. Let's go back one more time to 1912. The Industrial Revolution in full swing. Cheap goo and gimcracks are readily available. People start to feel they need to give presents to everyone they know, and some they barely do. So some of them are like, no, enough. And they form the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving, or SPUG. When they hold a rally in Manhattan in 1913, the New York Times describes the SPUG movement as, quote, a vigorous protest against the growing custom of exchanging gifts at Christmas without sentiment, and describes the Spugs themselves as a kind of silent majority who, quote, in his or her heart, had been bitterly resenting the annual holdups under the guise of the Christmas spirit. Maybe you feel the same. Maybe you're the Grinch, or maybe you'd rather craft your own gifts than touch the latest goo-gaws with a 39-and-a-half-foot pole. Maybe you want to make a trip to the hardware store or Target. Find an iron, some nails, and some glue. A feeling arrives just once a year to every home. This has been the Object Podcast. 
produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art with generous support from Ameriprise Financial. Check them out at Ameriprise.com. Check us out at artsmia.org. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Tim Gearing. Stay tuned for some special episodes as we close out this season and look forward to the next. And thanks very much for listening. See